Uh, we are continuing in our series in Revelation this morning. We're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 13, and I invite uh, the scripture reading there in your uh, in your bulletins. It's actually going to start at verse 11, not verse 1. And so if you are able, if you will stand with me in the reading of God's Word. John writes, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. That number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, as we enter this time in your word, we're a a part of your word that seems so very troubling and confusing and so many opinions about this text. So Lord, we pray, we pray that we will Set all that aside, that You will give us clarity by Your Holy Spirit, that we might indeed be empowered to live lives that are faithful to You in this day and in this hour. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, a, uh, a recent uh, prophecy teacher did some research about a person who lives today to see how closely that person fits with the number of the beast and the person of this Antichrist. He noticed that the Romans had no letter U, and so he used V instead for printing. And so he printed this person's name with Vs, extracting the Roman numerals, and using decimal equivalents for that name, adding those numbers, produced 666. Therefore he concluded, that's right, Barney the Purple Dinosaur is the Antichrist. Now, I'm just guessing here, but Barney the dinosaur probably is not what God has in mind when he tells the Apostle John that the number of the beast was 666. Now, if you'd asked me some years back when my boys were little, very little and enjoyed watching those videotapes on a regular basis, I might have had a different answer. But uh, let's step back and take a closer look at uh, this chapter 13. You know, in the previous weeks, we've seen that Satan is metaphorically described as the great dragon. But we've also seen that Satan doesn't work alone. He has two agents, kind of an imitation trinity. 
mimicking the Godhead. Last week, we saw that the first agent, the beast that came out of the sea, the sea which was the place of evil and judgment. And this first beast from the sea is described as predominantly political in nature and works through many antichrists in historical opposition to God's people by way of national leaders, Caesars, tyrants, kings, presidents, elected officials, even political systems and national ideologies that oppose Jesus and the building of God's kingdom. We saw that this beast is described as being fatally wounded. In other words, it comes to an end, but then it rises again, coming back to life at another place or another time. It is the nature of this beast. Oppressive leaders and systems do eventually end, only to rise again in a different iteration somewhere else. Now, if you weren't here for those uh, last couple of sermons, I would encourage you to listen to them. It gives a little bit more context to what, the, uh, what I'm going to be preaching on today. Because this week we'll be taking a look at the second beast. And this beast is uh, somewhat different in nature. We're told he comes from the earth. Unlike the sea, which represents instability, the earth represents stability. In other words, this beast is more reliable, more stable, comes from a place that is more reliable, or at least it appears that way. At first glance, this beast doesn't seem quite as daunting or as powerful. But then as we look more closely, we see that this beast's power comes from his ability to deceive. And so the first major point that this text makes, and it's uh, point one on your outline, by the way, which you'll find in the middle of your bulletin there. The power of Satan, as found in this second beast, reveals itself in false prophets, in great historical deceptions. Well, why do I say this? Because this beast is described, first of all, as having two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. In other words, it just looks like a little lamb. It looks innocent, and even appears in many ways like Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this should immediately remind us of Jesus' words found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. See, the symbolism and metaphor of this book recalls for us symbolism found in other portions of Scripture and in the culture of that day. See, Jesus is the real Lamb. He is the Word of God. He is the truth and speaks the Word of God, speaking the truth. This beast can appear, at least on the surface, like the Lamb. But he speaks like the dragon. His very nature is deceptive. And this is, by the way, point two on your outline. The real Lamb gave his life for sinners. See, he was the lamb that was slain. He was raised by the Father. But this lamb 
Well, this lamb's purpose is to deceive people from the true lamb of God. Its purpose is to draw people away from the real lamb of God, giving them just a a cheap substitute. See, the image that's being given is clear. There is the true Trinity, the Father who sends the Son, who is the Lamb. And the Father and the Lamb send the Holy Spirit who guides sinners to the Lamb of God. Then there is the unholy demonic Trinity. There is the dragon, Satan, who sends the beast from the sea, who represents political power that oppresses God's people. And he also sends the beast from the earth who calls others to worship the beast from the sea and the dragon. See, if you've ever run into an ideology or propaganda that gives even a hint of worshiping or idealizing a political leader or government, you have run into the beast of the earth who is calling you to worship the beast from the sea and Satan himself. See, there is a mimicking and deceptive nature to the enemy. The enemy doesn't appear as an evil demon. The enemy appears as an angel of light to deceive. The words of the beast tickle our ears. The beast's message sounds good. And it even imitates sometimes the good news of the gospel. Deceiving, if possible, even the very elect. See, Satan, the dragon, leads the world astray. And so does this agent, this cohort. He too deceives and leads people astray. Now the beast, uh, later in the book of Revelation, is, is described explicitly as the false prophet. A prophet speaks for God, but a false prophet claims to speak for God, but actually is speaking for Satan, the dragon. So uh, if you have your Bibles there, digital or paper, uh, turn with me to chapter 16, verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 13. Keep your finger there in 13. We'll be back. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So you see, dragon, beast, false prophet. And look at 19, chapter 19, verse 20. 19, 20. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. See, here we have these later passages giving us a clearer picture of earlier passages, which is very common in apocalyptic literature. The false prophet performs signs on behalf of the first beast, the beast from the sea, which is worldly powers and tyrants that oppress God's people. And that beast represents the dragon, Satan himself. And we see this, by the way, again in chapter 20, verse 10, if you want to look there with me. We see this when all three receive God's judgment. Beginning at verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. 
So the second beast is explicitly identified as false prophet. When the first beast is identified with the political spirit of Antichrist, the second beast is closely identified with false prophet. See, false prophet serves Antichrist, who in turn serves Satan. They all work together. Look there at, uh, back at chapter 13, verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. The second beast exercised all of the authority of the first beast who exercised the authority of Satan. See, this unholy trinity tries to replace God in our lives. In 2001, my wife Lynn and I were called to serve in singles ministry at a large PCUSA church in Wichita, Kansas. A church that a few years ago ended up leaving the PCUSA and came into the EPC as, as Parkway had done. Now, as part of my ordination, I was asked to do a unit of clinical pastoral education at a, as a hospital chaplain. It was a large Methodist hospital, hospital in town, a very excellent hospital, by the way. And so the, uh, the professional full-time chaplains were all ordained Methodist ministers. One of the assigned books by the chaplain in charge of the program was written by a man who described himself as a Buddhist Christian. The book taught basic Buddhist pantheistic philosophy, but just kind of with a gloss of Christian language. One uh, Christian lady who was uh, also doing this course as a layperson so that she could better serve her church as a deacon was very confused and troubled by this book and many of the things that were taught by the program. And when she asked the, uh, the chief chaplain, he explained to the class that as progressive Christians, they believe that all religions at their heart are basically the same. And that we discover that we are all part of God, which according to him is what Jesus meant all along, that all humans are just a part of God. Now, uh, she didn't believe this was right, but she didn't know how to address her instructor. I had, to, I had to take some time and give her some explanation of what all this and guide her to a book or two. A few months ago, I read the report of a United Methodist pastor who came out to her Kansas congregation during a January 3 sermon. She says, I've been an ordained United Methodist pastor for 25 years. At last, I am choosing to serve in that role with full authenticity as my genuine self, a woman who loves and shares my life with another woman, said the Reverend Cynthia Meyer during her sermon at Edgerton United Methodist Church. Now, I'm, I'm picking on United Methodists here. But the truth is that all mainline denominations have been for decades moving headlong in the same direction. For instance, uh, and I'm, my, guessing is, my guess is that many of you have seen this uh, at the time, especially when you were leaving the PCUSA, but in a report from August 4th in the year 2000, which came out of the PCUSA, was titled this, 
So what's the big deal about Jesus? With those words, the Reverend Dirk Fika of Chicago, a, president, a Presbyterian minister, told 600 people attending the Presbyterian Peacemaking Conference that Jesus is just one of many ways, one of many paths to salvation. Quote, God's ability to work in our lives isn't determined by becoming a Christian, Fika said. So what's the big deal about Jesus? Fika, in fact, urged the peacemakers to abandon what he referred to as their instrumental view of salvation, which holds that salvation comes solely through Jesus, and that Jesus Himself is the good news, and that the goal of the Christian faith is the establishment of Christendom. See, what this all represents is just another version of progressive Christianity which is simply another manifestation of false prophet. It has worked and continues to work very closely with progressive political movements for the last century. Progressive faith leads to idealizing progressive politics, which has been an ideology opposed to Christ's church in many ways. This has been true on the political left of this country for decades, but now we're also seeing it coming to fuller blossom on the right of the political divide where false ideologies of fear, hate, and exclusion calls for the worship of the first beast. Look at verse 12 there. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. See, that which opposes God ultimately wants to take God's place. Or as G.K. Chesterton put it, for when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. See, Satan comes to us as both good cop and bad cop. On the one hand, through the first beast, he can be oppressive and even bring persecution. And on the other hand, he can sweet talk to us, sweet talk to us into believing all kinds of false things. He can convince us that the wide path doesn't really lead to destruction. And the narrow path, well, that's just too narrow. Too narrow-minded. And this brings us to point three. The false prophet is filled with deceptive power. Not just power, but deceptive power. Look at verses 13 and 14 there. I won't read it. But the picture is a mimicking of Elijah the prophet. In fact, F.F. Bruce, the New Testament scholar, describes this false prophet, this beast, as the minister of propaganda for the first beast and for Satan. Let me see if I can explain some of the, uh, the description here. You know, it was a common superstitious belief in these ancient cultures that statues sometimes spoke. And the act of worshiping an image was common. There are even some religions today where this can be found. Sorcerers and magical practices in pagan religion were pervasive in the ancient Mediterranean world. Various ancient sources confirm the claim that priests of some cults staged wonders like moving or speaking statues 
and thunder and fire using machines. For example, Lucian explains how the false prophet Alexander made a fake god speak, while some church fathers commented that demons could make statues appear to speak. Some uh, emperors also reportedly employed machines to achieve effects that linked them to Zeus, and they appeared to hurl thunder. Roman and Greek magicians included rituals so that they seemed to animate images. An entire branch of magic called theurgy specialized in animating statues so that they could give oracles. In John's day, there was a great deal of superstition, and we see our culture quickly returning to that. Didn't Jesus warn us of such things in Matthew 24, verse 24? For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Let me give you one example, which is an article which came out of the Chicago Tribune. In a world where miracles are rare, Reverend John Steris has been blessed. In less than two years, he says, three statues of the Virgin Mary have wept in his presence. The first was the celebrated incident at St. John's of God Catholic Church on Chicago's southwest side last year. That same day, in a previously unpublicized incident, another statue was said to have wept in an Evergreen Park home as Father Steris was preparing to eat lobster in the room next door. It goes on, last October, a third statue reportedly wept on a bus during a tour Father Steris was conducting through the mountains of northern Italy. And he tells of 90 other statues around the world that behaved Similarly, he's a 42-year-old Brooklyn, New York priest. See, as the reports of miracles mount, scrutiny of Father Steris' claims and his cottage industry of statue importation has increased, the article goes on to say. So people sometimes ask me if these kinds of things are demonic power or just fraud. You know how I usually answer them? Yes. Either and both. Fraud is demonic. It's the beast of the earth at work. And just as with the magicians of Pharaoh and Moses' time, there are demonic powers. So either way, it's demonic. Now the, uh, the next point on your outline is one I want to emphasize. The miraculous does not necessarily mean good or right or even from God. See, God and his agents are actively working to communicate the truth. But Satan and his false prophet agents are actively out there working to deceive. And in our modern times, when nearly all the world is available to us on the internet, at our fingertips, at a moment's notice, we have to be ever aware that deception is everywhere. See, Satan will sometimes bring us big fat lies. But he's also just as likely to come, uh, come to us and say, you know that gospel stuff? Is, that's pretty good stuff. But let's add to the gospel a thing or two. 
And with your background, well, you need this practice or that therapy. You need to be healed emotionally, so let's add to the Gospel this or that. In fact, there are many common practices available today that are under the canopy of Christian that in my opinion and the opinion of most evangelical scholars are just simply the hoof prints of the beast. Or you know that Gospel and God's Word? Well, that just isn't enough. You need lots of miraculous signs all around you. See, Satan and his agent don't often come to us and say, I know you've been going north, but you really need to be going south. But rather they come and say, well, this path, well, that's just five degrees different and it can bring you greater healing and greater spiritual power, more health, more wealth. See, the problem is that that path, a generation or two or three later, often brings you to, a pa- to the destination of complete heresy. It'll often be presented to us as a moderating of our faith. See, that whole true discipleship stuff, well, that's just too extreme, too radical. You need to moderate that, that kind of sacrifice, commitment, compassion. Doesn't that sound reasonable? You know, C.S. Lewis in the book Screwtape Letters puts it this way, A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. You see, uh, that was the demon speaking to his younger demon. See, this too is all part of the false prophet. Now there's another aspect to this false prophet and it's the next point. He demands conformity. Look at verse 15 there and following to verse 17. So the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they couldn't buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, I won't go into all the potential historical background of these verses at the moment, but only to point out the main point here. See, this is a mimicking and a parody of the sealing of the elect. Those who belong to Jesus, he seals. Let me give you uh, how this looks. Back in chapter 7, if you've got your Bibles there, John speaks of the 144,000. And he's going to speak about that in chapter 14 as well. That number is clearly meant to indicate all God's people. The 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the Old Covenant times the 12 disciples, the leaders of the New Covenant times the thousand, a number indicating the full amount. And in chapter 7, verse 2, we read, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. See, this language, by the way, just is echoing from Ezekiel chapter 9, 
verse 4. I won't read that. I encourage you to, uh, to take a look at that. See, the prophet in Ezekiel, just as with this angel, is called to mark out those who are true believers, truly faithful to God's Word, if you will. And as God's elect, God's people are sealed, so are those who aren't in Christ. They too are sealed. They are owned, marked. See, in Revelation 7, God's people are sealed so they escape God's wrath. The false prophet seals his people so they escape the wrath of the beast. So the point here really is very simple. And some scholars have even concluded that this is the major message of the entire book of Revelation. And this is point six on your outline. You're going to be sealed by somebody and experience the wrath of the other. So whose seal do you want? And whose wrath are you willing to take? Or as Jesus put it, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So you don't get a neutral position. You don't get a third or fourth option. You either belong and are sealed by the one or the other. You either experience the opposition and the wrath of one or the other. And choosing the seal of God and the Lamb of God will often mean being subject to the wrath of the beast. One way a ruler impressed his sovereignty, by the way, over his people was through the stamping of his image on coins. And around the head of the emperor were titles including divine and worthy of worship. See, the marks of the beast without which no one can buy or sell, refusing that mark often meant economic hardship. And we saw that for some of the early churches that we saw at the beginning of this book of Revelation. Now we come to the number of the beast and what it means. I can with great certainty tell you that it isn't Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Though again, if you'd asked me a few years back, I might have had a different answer. Some have pointed out that 666 is symbolic of the greatest imperfection. Seven times one, or seven minus one, three times. And this makes some sense. But others have pointed out that John clearly says it's a, a human number, the number of a person's name. You know, there was a common ancient practice of giving numerical equivalents in Hebrew and Greek to letters. So, for instance, the name Ada, A-D-A, is 1 plus 4 plus 1, which equals 6. Now, some of, our, uh, some of early copies of the book of Revelation actually don't have the number 666, but they have the number 616. Neron Caesar in the Greek is 666. Nero Caesar, both of which were common ways of, uh, of putting his name down, was 616. His name uh, was spelled both ways. So many have interpreted this to point to him, and this too makes uh, some good sense. Others have pointed out that if you project this into the English, which is the predominant language in our modern day, that 666 can fill, uh, fit a whole lot of phrases. Here are just a few of them. Mark of the beast. Receive a mark. 
world ID card, bio-implant, digital ID chip, RFID body tag. Did you know the word computer numerically is 666? Image of Satan, Sharia laws, Allah is Lord, Vatican Hill, and absence of God equals 666. How about Santa Claus? That's right, Santa Claus is 666. No more cash, 666. Let me see if I can make one point here. Almost any name or phrase can be made to fit the number of the beast. So what's the answer? I remember uh, some years back, one of my New Testament professors discussing this issue of the number of the beast and whether it's... uh, the Antichrist is a particular person at the end of time. He asked this simple question. Does Satan have foreknowledge of when the end will actually come? Or when Christ's second coming will occur? Now the obvious answer to that question is no, he doesn't. So the follow-up question is, how could he not if he is to send this final agent of his? Here's what uh, makes the most sense of this text. Satan, by his nature, opposes the gospel. And his agents oppose God's people. He sends antichrist after antichrist and false prophet, false religions, deception after deception until the end. This is how this works. This is, the, in fact, the pattern that is being displayed here in the book of Revelation. This is how the world is now and how it will be until the final end. So what is it that we uh, need to take away from this message today? See, the fact is the church is not a social club or a cruise ship to heaven. It is a military unit and one that is under constant assault from the enemy. The only way to battle deception and falsehood is to fill our minds and hearts with God's truth, God's Word. And so the question for us is how well equipped are we in God's Word to deal with falsehood? Are you prepared? Do you daily put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand in the midst of the battle? Are you prepared to deal with false prophet deceptions that come at us, I guarantee you, every day? If you're on Facebook, you're getting it every day. I guarantee it. False Christianities that masquerade as the real thing. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, the truth is is that we are often ill-prepared, ill-prepared for the battle. We want to get comfortable in this world. We don't want to come to the realization that there is an ongoing battle, an ongoing battle for our hearts and our minds, and we need to be prepared. We need to be equipped. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder today. I invite you now to join with me in uh, 
the inside back page of your bulletin as we pray a prayer, our corporate prayer of confession in response to the sermon today. Let's pray this prayer together. Lord,